Welcome to Everything is Interesting, the sciencey science show all about things science, right here on X-Ray FM. I'm your host, Kira Klingenberg. And I'm your other host, Kira Lindenberg. Today, we wanted to keep on the topic of our first season, loops, by examining some loop patterns that form in our very own big human brains. And to talk this through with us today, we're joined by our good friend, David Zimelis. Hey, Kira and Kira. Oh, hi. I'm really, really glad to be here. And I'm also really glad that we're talking about loops in our brains because I'm excited to unravel something about brain science that I've been wondering about for quite some time. Oh, boy. We love unraveling things, especially when brain science is involved. And I love wondering about brain science. <laughs> Excellent. So yes. what have you been thinking about? All right. So it's a new year, right? I made some resolutions to break some old, maybe not so great patterns that I'd gotten into, like maybe eating too much sugar, mm. thinking negative things about mm. myself, so I could develop some Word. new healthier habits, like going to the gym or being kinder to myself. But it's really hard. I mean, so what I want to know is... How come some of my thoughts and actions seem to be on endless repeat? Like, for example, it seems like I never leave myself enough time to get ready for work in the morning. So why do I find myself doing the same things over and over again, even if I know better or if I want to change them? Well, I have wondered the exact same thing many times. So I did some digging. Turns out the reason we humans form habits and why those habits are so hard to break comes down to the wiring inside of our brains. Oh, it does. So every time you have a thought or you complete an action, it's because a message was sent through your brain down a chain of brain cells that are called neurons. These neurons pass messages from one to another, sort of like the baton gets passed in a relay race. Except while the runners in a relay race usually follow a singular linear path, neurons, well, they branch out and create an endlessly complicated web. So every time you learn something new, your mental baton is taking a different path through this web of neurons, creating a new and specific pattern. But these paths are not simple because each neuron in your brain is in direct contact with 7,000 7, other neurons. I don't actually even know how that's like physically possible. And that's a grand total of 100 trillion connections in your brain. Trillion is 100 billion, which is 100, 100 million. I don't know. You're t- asking me or telling me? I'm just, <laughs> I just do I the think, math off the top of my I head. Think I think it's know. something like just to give it some perspective. It's so many that there's like not enough time in the day, or probably even in our lives, to calculate how many possible paths there are for each thought to take. But your brain likes efficiency, so it tends to follow the same neuronal pathway patterns over and over again. For those of us who like to believe that each one of our thoughts are original and unique, well, this is kind of a buzzkill. The fact is, most of the things we think and do are actually things that we've thought and done countless times before. Once our brain creates a neural pathway and learns that, hey, this is an effective and efficient way of doing something, it will probably continue doing it that same way for a very long time. And thus, a habit is born. Yeah, but what if some action isn't all that efficient or effective? Like, let's say I want to get into shape and I just can't stop eating cookies for breakfast because that's what I've done for years and years. If my If my oh-so-smart brain is the one analyzing the situation and concluding that breakfast cookies aren't an effective way to get me to my fitness goal, why can't my brain also just decide to drop the habit? That is such a great question. I'm sure many of us struggle with the cookies for breakfast problem in our daily <laughs> I, lives. I, I I'm do. sure. And if you don't, then you're missing out, I must say. I'm glad I'm not alone on that. <laughs> the answer is sounds simple, but it's pretty complex. Really, it's, it's because it's very hard for your brain to break these habits. And it's not just because it's 
tough to, in the first place, build up the willpower to do so. You, you literally have to do the work to rewire the neuropathways forming those habits in your brain. And this is no small feat. Breaking a habit requires pitting several different parts of your brain against each other in an epic battle. Mainly the conscious part that wants to be healthy and the less conscious part that really likes doing things that you've done before. Right before the moment of cookie consumption, your brain has to make a decision between these two very tough choices. But before we can understand why the choice to chomp or not to chomp is such a tough one for us, we need to understand how our brains make decisions in the first place. That's probably a good idea. All right. So imagine, if you will, how many choices you have to make every single day just to get through the day. You know, hey, do you pick up that cup on the table and take a sip of whatever mystery liquid's in it? Do you want the pepperoni or the veggie slice of pizza today? Or, you know, will you or won't you play along when someone on the radio asks you to play along and imagine all these choices? (laughs) There are thousands of these types of decisions that your brain has to process every day. And on the surface, this might appear almost effortless to us. But what's going on underneath the hood It's quite a lot. So much has to occur inside your brain to come to even the simplest of decisions. To begin with, the sensory information coming into your brain has to be processed. For example, when contemplating picking up that cup and drinking from it, the first step is for your eyes, nose, hands, all your sensory organs to collect information about what's in front of you. And only then can your brain recognize that, hey, there is a cylindrical object on a table, it's full of liquid, it smells like coffee, and it feels hot. And then it has to distinguish that cup from, like, every other piece of information coming in about the outside world. Well, considering that in our world we're constantly bombarded by sensory inputs, I can imagine that our conscious mind is pretty overloaded with unnecessary details. Just looking around the studio right now, I'm thinking that my brain has to process how the table in front of me is smooth, how the air around me is warm, the level of sound coming through my headphones is loud, the fact that the light blinking over there is green. I mean, that's a lot. No, yeah, it certainly is. Luckily for you, your brain has a way to sort through all of that crap. Information registered by your sensory organs first has to travel up a chain of, guess what, message-relaying neuron cells. (laughs) It then, that message, then lands in a small area deep inside your brain known as the thalamus, which sort of acts as a gatekeeper, deciding which details of the outside world are relevant to the task at hand and should therefore be passed on to the rest of the brain for processing. So it's like a filter. Yeah, 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 in a way. And the way that the thalamus decides what information it has to pass on and what it keeps actually has to do with the constant communication between it and this big squiggly outer layer of your brain known as the cerebral cortex. That's the largest part of your brain. And, you know, like when you look at a photograph of a brain and you're like, wow, that's squiggly. What you're actually seeing is the cerebral cortex, in case you wanted to know. It's like a little casing for the yeah. whole It looks like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, that's where all, all kinds of higher order functions that we associate with consciousness happen. Besides making sense of the sensory input, the cerebral cortex is in charge of analyzing, reasoning, planning, feeling emotions, and coordinating and carrying out movement. These abilities are, you know, what makes us like unique in the animal kingdom. So whenever the cerebral cortex is focused on something, in this case, it could be your inherent thirst. It sends the message to the thalamus, hey, send me over some sensory input related to the thirst issue. Then the prefrontal part of your cerebral cortex, which is the part that sits just behind your forehead, is responsible for processing this information. This is where disconnected sensory information such as the cylindrical object on a table full of liquid, smells like coffee, feels hot, turns from just a bunch of random data into a more full, complete understanding that, hey, 
That's a very drinkable cup of coffee right there in front of me. I like how excited you sound about that. Well, it's coffee. (laughs) Yeah, we all could use more. The prefrontal cortex then connects that feeling of thirst you were focused on with the newfound understanding that there's coffee on the table. And then translating that into the realization that you could pick up that coffee and drink it. But that is a lot of complex connections just for getting a caffeine fix. I know, right? You think it's so simple and it happens so seamlessly, but there's like so much happening inside your brain just to pick up coffee. Yeah, instantaneous thought as we know it isn't really instantaneous. No, it's really not. And guess what? Your brain isn't even done yet because now you know what you could do, right? You could pick up the coffee, but you don't know what you should do. All this and some plans for possible interactions that you could have with this cup of coffee now have to get sent over to another part of your brain called the basal ganglia. And it's found deep inside the center of the brain. More specifically, it gets sent to a section of the basal ganglia known as the striatum. The striatum is responsible for weighing the likely outcomes of all of these potential coffee plans against both your short and long-term goals. The basal ganglia as a whole will then decide which actions are most in alignment with the brain's goals and send a modified version of the action plan back to the prefrontal cortex. For example, maybe the prefrontal cortex sends the message, there's a hot cylindrical mug of coffee on the table. I'm thinking of reaching down the left hand, grabbing the mug around the center, bringing it up to the mouth and chugging it because, you know, I'm thirsty and I'm tired. So now it's the striatum's job to weigh this plan that you've come up with against some long-term goals you may have of like, I don't know, staying alive and staying healthy. And perhaps some short-term goals you have of quenching your thirst, not burning yourself, and conserving energy by making as few extraneous arm movements as possible. If it seems like drinking the coffee will satisfy enough of these goals, the striatum will confer with the rest of the basal ganglia to evaluate and modify the prefrontal cortex's plan for optimum efficiency. Perhaps it will send the message back to the prefrontal cortex. Drinking the coffee is a good idea. Use our right hand since it is the more coordinated one. Pick the coffee up by the handle instead of around the center. Usually striatum is actually a robot. Then the the sections of the cerebral cortex involved with the coordinating movement can execute the muscle motions necessary to complete the action. Oh, and the basal ganglia, remember that? It also has another just as important role to play in this journey from sensory input to drinking motion. If you're going to end up going through all this stuff, deciding to pick up the coffee with your right hand, not slash it all over your face, well... To do so, the basal ganglia also has to then inhibit all the other movements that your body could be making instead. You know, all those extraneous wiggles. Once your brain has decided to pick up the coffee with your right hand, you don't also need to pick it up with your left. So the basal ganglia sends a secondary message to the cerebral cortex, inhibit the movement of the left hand. Meanwhile, the cerebral cortex is sending a signal all the way back to the thalamus, that gateway of sensory input, saying, hey, if you currently have any interesting tidbits of sensory information about our surroundings that don't pertain to the current coffee drinking task, maybe you could just keep those to yourself for a little while. All right. So let me see if I got this straight. My sensory organs, like my eyes, nose, ears, and mouth, they send a slew of information to my thalamus, which decides which of these details are important. And then that information gets passed on to the prefrontal cortex, which analyzes and connects this information together to form an understanding of what's in front of me, which my basal ganglia then weighs against my short and long-term goals and sends a message back to my prefrontal cortex with instructions on how to proceed while simultaneously and at the same time inhibiting all extraneous actions related to the task at hand. Yeah, 
And think of how many of those processes that you just had to go through to say all that. Babe. David, I am so impressed at your powers of retention. <laughs> that, that was extremely well said. I'll forget it as soon as we walk out of this room, <laughs> but I have it now. So I, but I honestly do get really tired thinking about this because that's really quite a roadmap of thought. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that's happening constantly to us to say these words, to like keep ourselves sitting up straight, to continue. Yep. Well, actually, continue breathing. Is that automatic? That's, that's different. That's automatic. Forget yeah. that. That's not true. That's a whole other story. But, but yeah, all of these conscious sort of little decisions we're making all the time, constantly. This cycle happens over and over and over again with all kinds of different sensory inputs. It's all a part of a function completed by a long, connected chain of neurons in your brain known as the cortico-striato-thalamocortical loop. Woo! Did it. That is... <laughs> So if we make the same decision over and over again, to do the same thing over and over again, the process becomes sort of embedded in our brain as a habit? Yeah. And while it may seem a bit restrictive for your brain to lock itself into habitual patterns, it's like actually essential to being able to function in the world at all. Consider this. Making a very conscious decision like, should I get up off this couch and make myself a healthy meal or should I just order a pizza? That's a lot more complicated work for your brain than the process of coordinating the footsteps it requires to get yourself to the kitchen. The brain has to weigh all the positive and negative consequences of each path you could take and then coordinate and execute all the muscle movements necessary to carry out that plan. But can you imagine if you had to like consciously make a decision about every single action you took, even the mundane ones like how fast should I move my legs when I'm walking to the kitchen or like what way should I put my foot down on the floor? Every step would take you as much time and effort as the first steps you took when you were a baby. Plus, your brain would be so tired, you'd probably have to take a nap every, like, 18 seconds. <laughs> it doesn't sound so bad. I know, right? I'm good with that. <laughs> I can't go to work. I have to take a nap every 18 seconds. <laughs> So to be energy efficient, lots of these little decisions that we make are instead made by our old friend, the basal ganglia, which is associated with a lot of functions that we would consider to be subconscious or at least less conscious than the higher order skills like analyzing and evaluating. The basal ganglia handles things like coordinating voluntary motor movements, recognizing patterns and learning and carrying out common actions we take every day. A psychologist might call these everyday actions, quote, routine behaviors, but we can also think of them as habits. So it sounds like my brain is designed to form habits, and it happens automatically. Does that mean that any action I take more than once will become habitual despite my intentions? Am I just doomed to eat cookies for breakfast for the rest of my life? Doomed is a funny word to use in connection to eating breakfast cookies, I think. <laughs> Am I fated to eat breakfast cookies forever? Sounds like my dream. No, not everything you do will become a habitual part of your life, but it's far more likely when the action and its consequence fulfill what some psychologists call the habit loop, in which there's a recurring cue, a learned routine, and a fairly consistent reward. Let's say you maybe, for example, incessantly reach for salty cheese crackers whenever you're thinking about how to explain a scientific concept to a radio audience. And, you know, it gets overwhelming. Who would do that? I don't know. <laughs> Just a random example, of course. <laughs> Who would do that? I say as I'm crunching on salty cheese crackers. Go on. I wish we had some crackers right now. I know. In this instance, the cue to begin the habitual behavior is your feeling of being overwhelmed by the daunting task of explaining the science concept. The routine, which is essentially the habit itself, is your cheese it consumption. 
And the all-important reward is that short break from the mental anguish of thinking too much accompanied by a release of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is responsible for telling our brains that something pleasurable or rewarding is happening, like I'm eating a bunch of Cheez-Its right now. Crunch, 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 crunch. The positive outcomes of relief and dopamine release will reinforce this behavior and makes it more likely that this <clears throat> random person we're talking about will choose to eat Cheez-Its again. Hmm. I wonder who that applies to. Yeah, it's a mystery. <laughs> no, it's definitely not anybody in this studio. Although I've got to say, I mean, I would also add the, the crunching sound of the Cheez-Its to be a pleasurable reward. Because it's not <laughs> just a satisfying sound. You know, <laughs> the actual sound of cheeses, or you you mimicking the no, sound? No, 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 the actual crunching. sound. Because imagine if they squelched instead, you wouldn't be excited. What if they sounded like cheese curds? Oh, that would be fun too. <laughs> That's definitely an <laughs> example of a reward. Any sound, sound that any cheese makes mm -hmm. is happy to my ears. Anyways, all I'm going to say except when they squeak against your teeth. No, I like that. You do? Yeah, because my brain associates it with the dopamine release oh, okay. when I get when I eat cheese. It's curds. different for everyone, I guess, right? <laughs> Reward is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or the ear. The brain the, the, the neuro the the, uh, the neuron of the beholder. All I'm gonna say here though is that here on Everything is Interesting, we fully believe in the power of keyboard protectors and napkins. And salt. Yes. And, and fat. fat. <laughs> But getting back to my earlier question about eating cookies for breakfast, it seems like this Cheez-It scenario is another example of a habit that isn't exactly effective or efficient at achieving the goal of my being healthy. You're right. The Cheez-It eating doesn't seem nearly as important as something like motor function and getting yourself from one place to another. One thing we could assume is that our Cheez-It stress snacker person just doesn't care about being healthy. So therefore, it's, they, they don't weigh that as a potential long-term or short-term goal. But you're right. Let's let's instead pretend that they actually do care and they want to live as long as possible and they want to be healthy. And they also know all the science behind how to make it happen. Well, in that case, why would this cheesy eating habit stick so long and be so hard to change? The brain should know better, right? Well, the basal ganglia knows better. But to the brain as a whole, the habit of reaching for those tried and true cookies or cheese crackers may actually appear to be the best possible decision. Whoa. It boils down to the fact that your brain, whose main job is to help you survive at all costs, conserving energy is more valuable than almost anything else. And it takes way more energy to learn a new process than it does to complete a learned, nearly automatic process. To learn something new means going through the whole long process of the corticostriatothalamocortical loop, which means weighing sensory input, making a decision, designing a course of action, and carrying out an unfamiliar set of muscle movements. All the things that make you feel really exhausted in your brain, David, right? Right. The only thing more exhausting than saying all that is doing it. Meanwhile, a learned automatic action, like the cheese eating and the, any kind of habit you may have, that's, well, pretty much automatic for your brain. It's efficient and it's easy, regardless of whether it's good for us or not. So our brains are set up to go into automatic processing mode whenever possible. In automatic processing mode, rather than think through the possible good and bad outcomes of every single proposed action, the brain relies on the memory of which actions have consistently produced that release of dopamine that we talked about earlier that's associated with reward. The dopamine pathways in our brain have been keeping us animals alive by motivating us to procure food, sex, shelter, other necessary items for, you know, like the small number of two billion years. This system did not survive that long by being easily overthrown by the prefrontal cortex. So even though the higher cognition parts of your brain can recognize that che eating Cheez-Its is, like, not going to help you achieve your long-term goal of looking good and staying healthy. Unless and, you're like, really lucky. 
<laughs> yeah, really lucky. You have really good genes. <laughs> it's like your cerebral cortex knows better because it wants to be like slim and trim and healthy. But the dopamine-controlled reward system, which loves survival tools like salt, fat, and carbohydrates, is just like a heck of a lot stronger. Okay, it's not that my brain isn't aware that eating breakfast cookies every day isn't good for me. It's just that I get some dopamine every time I eat all that sugar, and then it becomes a habit. And then the path of least resistance for my brain is to just eat cookies. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's so easy, isn't it? It's just so easy to get up and eat your cookies. It's, mm. I can tell the, the battle that's happening inside my brain as we talk about this topic because there's one part of my brain that's like, yeah, you should really stop eating cookies for breakfast. And then there's another part of my brain that's like, that's the best idea I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to turn that into my habit. It's just, it's unfortunate for your health, but it just costs so much energy to engage this part of our brains, this decision making part. Yeah. So we've evolved into going into habit mode by default for most of the familiar choices that we're faced with. But that's also not to say that automatic processing mode and habitual behavior will always win out against conscious, complex decision-making. There was a study done a few years ago by the University of California that revealed there is a constant battle between the neural circuit that controls habitual action and the one that controls goal-oriented action going on at all times. This battle is won or lost in the prefrontal cortex of your brain, that area that we keep talking about that's in charge of making complex decisions. When the researchers artificially stimulated the neurons in the prefrontal cortex of mice, goal-directed actions won out. Contrastly, when the prefrontal cortex was quieted, so there wasn't a whole lot of like neurons firing up there, the mice's behavior became much more habit-controlled. So then it stands to reason that if you want to stop performing a habitual action, you need to get the prefrontal cortex involved. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm. because the prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that can say... I know it's our routine to eat a bunch of cheeses and cookies, but this time, this time, we're going to consciously decide to be healthy today. It sounds like you're trying to convince yourself yep. over there. <laughs> to force your prefrontal cortex to get engaged, your best bet is to throw some new stimulus at it, like a new location. Charles Duhigg, who's the author of the book The Power of Habit, poses that the easiest way to stop a bad habit or start a new good one is to make the changes while you're on vacation in like a new or foreign place you've never been to before. You're suddenly faced with new, unfamiliar choices, which forces your brain out of automatic processing and into decision-making mode. So then a change in scenery means I can't rely on some of my learned habits. Since the sensory input has changed, my prefrontal cortex has to engage so I can adapt. And that gives me a chance to form new habits. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty simple, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it is. And luckily, our brains are wired to quickly figure out the most efficient way to deal with new situations. This is something called reversal learning, and it's how we adapted to our current surroundings. For example, when I was a kid, I had this habit of staying up really late, playing hours upon hours of Pokemon. I, it was great. I loved it. I still love it. Look back fondly. I got a lot of dopamine hits from catching Snorlaxes and Psyducks, I will be honest. But now I'm older, and my surroundings and circumstances have certainly changed. And I don't enjoy spending that much time anymore playing that game because, well, I like sleep. When my brain once received a burst of dopamine from my gotta catch em all habit, it is now adapted to release that dopamine when I instead receive the reward of, you know, waking up feeling good and refreshed from getting a full night's sleep. Let's be honest, though. You get a dopamine release from both of those things. You're right? probably right. Okay. If, I, if I start playing Pokemon <laughs> now, I still feel really good, but it might not be habitual. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's I can always, I mean, I can start. I can I can bring that habit that's back. That's good to know. That's what, ready. That's exactly what we're talking about. Early reversal learning. <laughs> Your flexibility is really inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's well said. So we can use reversal learning to form all kinds of new, better habits. If you want to get to the gym more often, find a way to induce that feeling of reward every time you show up. So like maybe you listen to your favorite song, maybe you give yourself a gold star sticker, or you just like focus on the really positive feeling you get when you work out. Your brain eventually starts to file going to the gym under the category of things we know will make us feel rewarded so we don't have to put much effort into deciding whether or not we're going to do them. As your dopamine pathways become more active, your prefrontal cortex becomes less involved, quiets down, takes a nap, and eventually your basal ganglia recognizes that working out is a habitual action. So if I want to break my breakfast cookies habit, I need to train myself to receive a reward for not eating the cookies? Yeah. That's a great idea. That could work. Like every time you decide to hold off on the cookies, you could give yourself a dollar towards some new gadget you wanted to buy. You know, um, ideally you'd want to give yourself a reward that is equally or more strong than the reward of how tasty those cookies are, you know, for eating something more healthy. So then maybe every time I eat eggs on whole wheat avocado toast for breakfast instead of cookies, I put aside a couple of bucks for a really nice bottle of wine. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I retrain my brain with a new series of rewards so I can form healthier habits. Essentially so. And everybody's, you know, everybody's going to have different rewards that work for them. You know, bottle of wine for you. Pokemon for me. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny when I when I was reading about this when I was uh, researching it. It's like all these things that they tell you to do to form new habits. It reminds me of like remember when you were a kid and I don't know if you guys had but I had like a chore chart and every time I would do mm. you know do a chore it was like I got a sticker and like sometimes they were smelly stickers and sometimes they're yeah. You they know, had the foil, but, so they they were a little yeah. bit incandescent or and it's yes, oh my god, yes. That and not the right word. And it was uh you know, it seemed so simple and now looking back on it, I'm like, really? I did things for stickers, but like this is my parents were just using the dopamine system in my brain to yeah. be like, whenever you whenever you clean the bathroom, you get a sticker. And my brain's like, yeah, let's keep cleaning the bathroom. Great habit. If you say to the kid, Well, if you clean the bathroom, you'll get some dopamine. <laughs> not, not quite depends, the same thing. Depends on how smart your kid is. I guess. Well, that's true. That's true. If your kid just listens to their show, though, that the show, then they now they know that what's actually happening is that they're just intentionally rewiring their neural pathways to develop new and great habits. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. So exactly another reason to listen to the show if you're five. And if a five-year-old can do it, you can do it too. If you're not a five-year-old. Here's something I found particularly interesting. Uh, Researchers at the University of California found that the catalyst in a mouse's brain uh, that causes it to switch between decision-making and habit-performing were neurotransmitters called endocannabinoids. Uh, And those are the ones that operate on the same neuroreceptors as THC and CBD, which are the molecules from the cannabis plant. Except endocannabinoids, you know, exist uh, in your brain naturally. There are plenty of these endocannabinoid neuroreceptors called CB1 type and CB2 type on the pathway of neurons that relay messages from the prefrontal cortex to the striatum. Remember, that's the part of the brain we talked about earlier that helps make decisions by weighing potential actions against the brain's long short term goals. When the researchers disabled the CB1 type receptors along this pathway, the mice were unable to form new habits. This showed the importance of both the endocannabinoid system and the prefrontal cortex to striatum pathway in the process of habit forming, which may prove very useful in treating harmful habitual addictions in humans, such as smoking or gambling. Um, could you go over that one more time? (laughs) 
I know it, it, it's so clinical. Okay, essentially, these researchers, what they found is, all right, so remember we were talking about the corticostriatothalamal corticoloop, <laughs> whatever yes. that thing was. So it's just like your thalamus, your cerebral cortex, your striatum are like constantly talking to each other being like, I'm trying to weigh this decision. I'm trying to make this decision. I'm trying to execute this, this decision. Here's a bunch of sensory input. The researchers found that in like on the neurons that go from your prefrontal cortex, which is making decisions, to your striatum, which is weighing decisions against your goals, there's a ton of CB1 receptors, which are when you smoke marijuana, like those are the receptors that THC fits into. Um and get you high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they found that, the researchers found, like, basically they bred mice that didn't have those receptors, which is kind of messed up, but true. And they found that the mice without those receptors were not able to form habits. So it was like every single thing that they did was new. Like, I've never, how do I take a step? I don't know. Let's learn. Uh, so there's step. a relationship with the endocannabinoid system to our ability to form habits. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, because essentially what it's saying is like, it's it's that whole thing we were talking about where there's this constant battle mm-hmm. of should I make a new decision? Should I do the habitual action that I already know how to do? And it, what it's saying is that the CB1 receptors are extremely, I mean, apparently completely necessary to switching between those two types of thinking. Zzz. So that's interesting. So if I were to hypothetically get high, then I might feel like I was doing everything on autopilot. Like I could microwave a burrito but have no conscious recollection of doing it. And then I go to microwave another burrito and there's already one in there that I forgot about. Is never that... happens. That never happens. <laughs> no, it's very no. hypothetical. Like no, no, like never I said, done in hypothetically your life. Uh-huh. Um, in, in the abstract. Because is this is because the habit-reliant behavioral circuit in my brain has taken over? Yes. So, like, I haven't been able to find any definitive research that proves that, but I have thought the same thing. And, like, why I thought this was so fascinating is because here's a personal story. Uh, Tell your five-year-olds to leave the room. Consuming cannabis, for me, does cause me to perform far more habitual actions. And, like, I think way less about the things that I'm doing, right? So it's, you know, I mean, not that you should ever, ever, ever drive a car high, but, like, you know, there's that like that old adage about like, how did I even get to where I was going? I don't even mm-hmm. remember driving. And I assume that this relationship between the CB1 receptors and the quieting of the neurons in the prefrontal cortex is why someone like me, who really probably has ADHD and gets like very stressed out and exhausted by this like constant decision making process, I feel so much calmer and less anxious after I smoke cannabis. And I think it's because it quiets my prefrontal cortex. And maybe, you know, with the with it becoming legal in more areas, more states, and the more research that's able to be done on this, who knows, they might actually discover oh, and girl. be able to confirm, hey, there is a connection. I cannot wait until we can legally do research on this because yeah. that, this is, I think this is going to be, like, I mark it right now on your calendars. This is going to be my yeah, area of research. This, I'm this so could stoked be, about this it. This could be super interesting. So stuff for the future. Mm-hmm. All right. So if I wanted to go Back to the breakfast cookies for a second. <laughs> Always go back to the breakfast cookies. Yeah, yeah, literally. All right, so I feel pretty confident that if I really, really, really want to stop eating cookies for breakfast, I can do it. My willpower actually is pretty strong, and I've broken bad habits before. But what if the decision-making part of my cerebral cortex wasn't as strong? Like, is it possible that even with using these techniques you mentioned, habit could still win out? Yeah, it is possible. What you're essentially describing is actually a brain with obsessive compulsive disorder. Researchers 
don't fully understand the mechanisms behind OCD, but they do know that the problem seems to lie not in the cerebral cortex, but in the way that the sections of the brain communicate. So that corticostriatothalamocortical circuit we were so eloquently really talking well. about this because I before we got into the studio, I did that's like that was like my warm up chant. Yeah, is if if those sections don't communicate correctly, then you end up with OCD behavior. Huh. All right. Well, I, I, okay. I, I remember that those parts of the brain work together to take in information about what I'm seeing and smelling and stuff. And then they turn it into thoughts I can actually understand. Like there's a cup of coffee on the table. There's that cup of coffee again. <laughs> and then it makes a decision about what I should do in response to that sensory information. Like you should, excuse me, you should pick up the cup. How was that? <laughs> well done. Excellent striatum. Excellent. <laughs> Just like the striatum sounds in my head. You'll, you'll also remember that we talked about how after your cerebral cortex weighs the potential action against the likelihood of reward or punishment and makes a final decision about picking up the cup, the striatum then has to send signals that will inhibit any movements that are not involved in doing that action, right? Right. So, okay. So if I was trying to decide between picking up the cup and knocking it over on the floor, my striatum would have to send a no-go signal to my cup-knocking-over muscles. <laughs> yes, that's a good example. That's a technical term, isn't it? <laughs> my cup-knocking-over muscles. Next time I knock over things. Oh, my darn it's blank knocking over muscles those, just those going the, out of control. Those are the, the muscles that are really active in like cats. Like knock, <laughs> knock things off yes, of tables. They have a lot more of those than humans. <laughs> well, so your cerebral cortex, your striatum, and your thalamus, which remember is the gateway for the raw sensory data coming in from your eyes and ears and whatever, are constantly engaged in this conversational loop to keep all of the muscle activations and inhibitions in balance. But when the conversation gets thrown out of whack, like maybe the striatum's starts screaming louder than the cerebral cortex. Like or... a robot screaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that sounds horrible. Ah. Or, or the messages being like sent and received become kind of garbled. Then the result is obsessive compulsive behaviors. And the unclear communication leads the brain to become like overexcited and perceive a heightened sense of danger or importance connected to the current decision being made. So then that's why someone with OCD feels that it's so important to complete a seemingly mundane action, like washing their hands incessantly or touching the door handle several times before opening it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, sometimes. There's a strange thing, though. Uh, with most OCD patients, another part of their brain is actually aware that the obsessive actions they're undertaking are completely unnecessary. Many people who have this feel compelled to complete these ritual-like actions, while at the same time having to wrestle with the fact that they don't actually want to do them. Behavior you've done a thousand times, like reaching out to touch the doorknob, definitely falls under the habit category, right? Because you know how to do it already. Something about the overreaction of the corticostriatothalamal cortical circuit causes the OCD patient to default to habit performing, even when the cerebral cortex has decided that the habitual action of reaching out and you know turning the doorknob isn't actually necessary at the time. It's trying to suppress the habit or like consciously perform a different unfamiliar action, but it can't. Wow, there's so much going on in our brains at any given time. I am amazed that we are able to have any coherent thoughts at all. 
I think it's fascinating that scientists have been able to decipher all of these processes to make sense of how we develop and break habits. Yeah, it's nuts. This is why brain science is so cool. So cool. I mean, there's many reasons. This is not the only one, but this is one of the reasons. One of them is because they get to say corticostriatothalamal cortical loop so much. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) I'm sure that's actually why most people chose this line of research. They're like, that word, that one, I want to say it every day. (laughs) You could just be a musician and then that could be your band name and then no one would ever come to your show because they'd be like, I can't can't pronounce it. They wouldn't even be able to fit the name on the marquee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they could just put a big picture of the brain. Oh, yay. Oh, yeah. Love it. Problem yeah. solved. Well, unfortunately, now we have to use our own big complex brains to determine that we are totally out of time on today's show. And now I get to make the decision to say adieu. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk brain science, David. And thank you guys for inviting me back. I really enjoy talking science with you. Yeah. We, thank you so much. We love having you oh, here. Oh, my pleasure. As always, listeners, you can access this and all of our episodes on our website, everythingisinteresting.org. Oh, also, we just got a new batch of t-shirts printed. They yes, look we did. really awesome. There's like a ton of different colors, but that won't last and we'll almost always end up with like just black or purple or something at the end. So go get them now. You can go to patreon.com backslash everything is interesting to get yours. Your Patreon support is something that helps keep keep us going, and we're very, very thankful for that. But we also understand that not everybody is able to donate. So if you do like this podcast, something you can do to help us out is just download it. Go onto the iTunes website, rate and review us, and then ask three of your friends to do the same. Our iTunes rating helps us acquire sponsors. And like weirdly, the reviews apparently are like what gets you higher up in the, the podcast ranks. So like, please do that. Also, it helps spread enthusiasm for science education to as many people as possible. It's a win-win. Yeah. Also, you get a bunch of karma points. So thanks so much to all of our beautiful producers at X-Ray. Amalia over there. We thank you so much. Um, and really, most of all, thank you guys out there for listening. We really appreciate it. For now, I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. This is Everything is Interesting, right here on X-Ray, where radio and is science is yours. Is yours.